Hi. <laughs> Let's stand as we go before the text this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning, and we'll talk about why here in a little bit here, so flip down. But before we do that, uh, we start our text uh, each time as we go before the text with a prayer called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way of... of Everything that's going on, all the hustle and bustle of Christmas, maybe you've got presents you still need to wrap or buy, maybe you've got uh, a lot of things, family's coming over, you're hosting, you're traveling. This is a chance for us to be able to slow down and to say, God, as, as we go before the text, as we hear your word, the very words of you, may we slow down here and may we hear it. May we hear you this season. So this is our chance to recommit ourselves and just that slow down, be able to be able to be ready to hear that. So say this prayer uh, after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. This is Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd followed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came at and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You may sit down. We've had uh, some really lovely music this Christmas season, particularly today. We've just had a lot of uh, wonderful special music, wonderful songs that we can sing. And these are songs we sing all the time, but I find that we all have songs that we know, but we don't really know, right? You may sing them all the time, but you might as well be singing peas and carrots the whole time because you don't actually really know what you're singing. When I was a kid, Amy Grant had this song. Yes, the Amy Grant had a song, and it was El Shaddai. Anyone remember El Shaddai by Amy Grant? Yeah, a few of us, a few of us do, right? It was El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Elian and Adonai. Age to age, you are still the same by the power of your name. Beautiful song, wonderful words. The problem is, as a 12-year-old, I thought she was singing Hell Shaddai. I mean, to a 12-year-old, that makes, that's perfect theology to a 12-year-old. Hell should die, of course, yeah, who wouldn't want that? So there I sang it when it came on the radio, and hell should die, hell should die. And I would just sing that with my little heart. We all have songs like that, right? When I was a teenager, there was this youth group song called Days of Elijah. Anyone remember Days of Elijah with the, with the hand motions, right? Yeah. We sang that with all our might, with hand motions, everything. We had no idea what that song was about. Still today, 
If we sang that today, most of us would not quite know what it meant, but we'd sing it with all our might, and the hand motions would come out, and the whole thing. Because even as adults, we have these songs. And I think particularly Christmas songs can be like this, because we sing them every single year, and yet oftentimes they're really confusing. Does anyone really know what Gloria in excelsis Deo? Anyone actually know what that means? Anyone up on their Latin? It means glory to God in the highest, which I didn't know until I looked it up this week, full disclosure. <laughs> I'd been singing that song for years, and I was thinking, what are some songs that no one really knows the words to? We just kind of sing it. And I was like, that's a perfect one, and I had no idea. Glory to God in the highest. You see, we're doing a sermon series on these Christmas songs during Advent to really help us grasp some of the meaning behind it. These songs that you sang for years, that you'll sing this year, that you'll sing well into the future. And to try to provide some context, some background to understand these songs so that when we sing them, we can actually sing them. We, we know what we're saying. We know what we're declaring. And when the sermon series came out, uh, the other pastors will tell you, I called dibs on this song. I said, I got Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because I loved it. It's my favorite Christmas carol. Like, that one's mine, dibs on Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But even the title, when I looked into even the title trips us up, right? What does hark mean? Anyone hark? To listen, right? Listen. And of course, this song has an exclamation point after hark, so it really means listen. Listen. What does herald mean? I was like, Harold, man, I had to look that up too. It means a message or a messenger. Okay, this is why some newspapers are called the Herald, because it's bringing you news. So it's listen. We've got a message. These angels that are singing has got a message for you. There's this newborn king that deserves glory. Listen to what we're about to say. And so this title means, listen to the message, a child is laying in a manger that deserves glory. And then this title repeats over and over again. Listen, listen, hear, there's a message, there's a message to be heard. But if you have your uh, fill out this morning, here's your first fill out. But there, there comes a title question then. And the title question is, well, what is this herald the angels sing? Why is glory due a newborn king. If we repeat this over and over throughout the song, if this is the title of the carol, the question we have to answer is, what is this herald? What is this message the angels sing? Why is glory due a newborn king? Well, the lyrics to this song were written by Charles Wesley in 1739, and it went through some minor adaptions to get to the song that we have Today. Now, when Wesley wrote it, he wrote actually over 8,000 hymns, which is just blows my mind, this guy, right? So he wrote a lot. He had a lot of things that he did uh, during that time. But as he was writing, he envisioned that this song would be a slow and somber melody. A slow and somber melody. In fact, he envisioned it that it would be sung to the same tune as his Easter song he wrote, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. So he said, I want to sing, he wrote the words, which are pretty much the same that we have today. He wrote the words, and he said, I want it to be slow, I want it to be somber, and in fact, we already have a tune. Let's just, let's just use the old uh, Christ the Lord is risen today version. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing you what he envisioned over 300 years ago, 
of what this song should be. All right, ready? Now, it's difficult to try to sing a, a different tune with lyrics that you've done, so give me grace, okay? But here it goes. This is what, this is kind of how he envisioned it. He said, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Thank you, thank you. Now, this version was discarded almost immediately. <laughs> and the reason is, is because the lyrics don't match the tune. If you read the lyrics, they're celebratory, they're victorious, they're joyful. This isn't a song that's somber and it's supposed to make you think and be real introspective. You're supposed to celebrate this song. This is supposed to be, if you read the lyrics, man, this is, a, this is about a party. We're supposed to rejoice, peace on earth and mercy mile. God and sinners reconcile. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Peace, reconciliation, joy, triumph, proclamation. No wonder they threw out the version. This is supposed to be sung. It doesn't fit a somber tune. But this first verse also, what this first verse doesn't do, it also doesn't answer our title question. Why is this herald, what is this herald the angels sing? Why is glory due a newborn king? This is mostly about primarily calling us to worship and recognition of the magnitude of the child, of the Bethlehem child. But it doesn't really answer our question. What is the message though? Yes, peace and reconciliation and he's here, he's been born, yes, but, but what is the question? And the second verse is actually more of the same. Christ by, heavens, Christ by highest heavens adorn, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold, he comes, offspring of the favored one. Failed in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please as man and man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Adoration, lordship, arrival, incarnation, divinity. Again, wonderful and beautiful things, but they are still mainly descriptors calling us to worship. It doesn't actually answer the, the question. The title question remains. What is this herald the angel sing? Why is glory due a newborn king? And then we get to verse three. And in the third verse, we find that this song is moving towards something. It's developing the anticipation. It's upping the hype. It's building the suspense. It crescendos in this third verse, verse and we discover what the song is celebrating. What is this herald the angels sing? Why is glory due a newborn king? Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth. Born to give him second birth. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Now, to understand this, we have to go back. 
pretty far back. We actually have to go back to the book of Numbers, which is a, a book you definitely think of at Christmas time, right? You gather around with your family and go, come on, kids, gather around. We're going to read out of the book of Numbers. It's Christmas time. But here we are. So flip on over to Numbers chapter 15. It's all the way back at the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Head over to Numbers 15 with me. Because in Numbers 15, it describes different ways that God wanted Israel to worship him. And at the end of this chapter, the very end of chapter 15, there's this five-verse description of something he wanted the Israelites to wear. He had this idea, God had this idea, and he wanted to institute it into his law of something that his people were going to wear. So the last five verses in Numbers 15, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners or the fringe of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commandments of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all of my commandments and will be consecrated to your God. And so these fringed tassels were to remind Israel of all the Lord's commandments because God knew we needed reminders. Some of us need reminders out there, daily reminders that say, you are God's, follow after his way. And God knew this. So he said, I've got an idea. This is what I want you to do. I want you to put these tassels or these fringes on the corners of your coat, the coat corners of your outer shawl that you wear. Um, and so we, we actually have one here. This is something that they do. And Jews to this day do this. They wear this. This is called a top talit which is a, a, about a, a, a prayer shawl or an outer corner. And what God said was that on the corners, you were to have these tassels, these, these fringes. And so all, all the time when you're wearing them, each day that you wear them, you'll see the fringes dangling below, and it will remind you that you were to follow after my way. So like I said, still to this day, the Jewish people will wear these. They'll wear these things, and the tassels will hang out from below in order to remind them of the commandments God had for them. We actually have a very high Jewish population here in Buffalo, and even in our neighborhood, on our block, it seems to be absolutely, we have two rabbis that live on our street. And so every Saturday when we're watching our cartoons and drinking our coffee in December, there are our friends walking to synagogue in their little coats and trying to get there on their way. We're like, oh, that's, that looks hard. Good, good for them. Good old Ezra, there he is, right? But if you look closely enough, underneath their big winter jackets, you'll notice the tzitzits, they're called, the, 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 the tassels, the fringes below their jacket. If you've ever seen on Saturdays them walking, notice next time you see one, notice, and you'll see these little things dangling out under their coats, on the fringe of their garments. And it's the idea that when I see it, I will remember God, I'll remember that I'm God's, and that I will follow his commandments. Now, these, these he, this Hebrew word, and if you have your, uh, you your uh, fill-in, this is your next fill-in, the Hebrew word for these coat corners is kanaf. God said, when you, I want you to put these on the, the kanafs, on the corner, coat corners of your, on the fringes of your garments. Kanaf is the word. 
And so Jewish people, because again, throughout the generations, it says you should do this, people today do that. But Jesus, being a good Jew, being a good rabbi, would also have been wearing the seat seats. They'd be wearing the kanaf, the, the, the tassels, the fringes on the kanafs of his jacket or of his corner, on his, uh, on his uh, uh, outer garments. And it's interesting because it's actually mentioned in different places in in Jesus' time. In fact, in Jesus' time, there's actually this little thing that some of the Pharisees would do because there was this belief that uh, you were more spiritual the bigger your fringes were. Like if you had big fringes, that meant, oh, you're, re- you're super spiritual. And so some of the Pharisees would actually do this. And I was trying to think of uh, an equivalent today, like if you had like a big Bible or if you had like a big medallion with a cross on it, maybe someone would think you are more spiritual than not. Well, this is what the Pharisees thought back in Jesus' day. And so G- Pharisees that wanted people to know how spiritual they were, how religious they were, they would make their tassels extra long. They'd make their fringes a lot bigger so that when they walk down the street, people go, oh, look, at, look at his fringes. They're pretty big. Guy must be spiritual, right? Jesus actually condemns this at one point. It's really funny. In Matthew 23, he says this. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their fringes long. So Jesus actually calls them out in Scripture. Say, don't, don't listen to those Pharisees, or at least, no, listen to the Pharisees, just don't do what they do, because they want you to know how spiritual they are, so they make their fringes super long, so that they'll get more respect out and about. Now, with this in mind, turn over to the book of Malachi, which again is a super Christmas book. We read this in our family every year. We do not. We do not do that. Malachi 4. If you need help finding Malachi, it's the very last book of the Old Testament. And chapter 4 is the very last chapter in the very last book with Malachi, who's the very last prophet of Israel, before they go into a 400-year silent period. For 400 years, God is quiet. No prophets, no scripture, no divine words, silence. As they wait for the Messiah to come, as they wait for the one that God promised Moses, that God promised David, that someone would come and make all things new. And so Malachi is writing, and he's the last one before there's this dead period. 400 years as the Jews wait, wondering when the Messiah will come. The last book of the last chapter. And it says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall come with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness will come with healing in its wings. These are literally the final words heard for 400 years as they wait for the Messiah to come. And so Malachi, with this last chapter, said, hey guys, as you wait, you want to know when the Messiah's coming? You want to know when you know that's the one? Well, when he comes, the son of righteousness he will have healing in his wings. Now, when you're filling, the next one, the Hebrew word for wings is kanaf. 
It's the same word. Kanaf means wings, and it also means coat corners. It's both. And if you remember, we actually talked about this in Ruth. Because in Ruth, it says, Ruth says to Boaz, spread the corner of your coat or over your wings over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This word meant the both things at the same time. Because when you accepted someone, when you brought them in, when you extended your talit to them with an outstretched arms, it would look like this. And people over time, as you would welcome someone in, they'd say, that looks a little bit like wings. And so the two concepts became so synonymous and so connected with each other that they, they combined it to one word, this one word, kanaf. And so then the rabbis would read and go, huh. So what God told us to do is to put these fringes on the kanafs of our clothes, of our garments. And then Malachi tells us that when the son of righteousness comes, there'll be healing in his kanaf. And they began to put the pieces together and a belief rose up that said when this Messiah came, when he's walking down the street, there would be healing in his fringes, literally in his coat. And that belief developed and grew. And so the anticipation was is that when we see the Messiah come, man, look out for the wings. Look out for his coat, the corner, the tassel the fringe. A belief developed that when the Messiah came, he would have power to heal in the fringe of his garment. The fringe of his garment. Which gets us back to the passage we read at the beginning. Jesus is on his way to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And on his way to raising this 12-year-old girl, He's about to, what is he about to do? He's about to raise a daughter of earth and give her second birth. When a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years reaches for him. Now these two mentions of 12 is intentional. We're supposed to see these two stories together. Whatever Jesus is about to do for the girl, we're about to get a sneak preview with this woman. But she doesn't just reach anywhere, does she? Where does she reach? For the fringe of the garment. See, I always thought the woman was just trying to touch Jesus. Just like, whatever I can do, like, I just need to get my hand on him. And maybe then he'll heal me. But no, 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 she she reached intentionally. She knew the prophecy. And so when she reaches for the fringe of his garment, she's actually making a statement What is she saying? I believe you're the one. The son of righteousness, we're told, is going to come and he's going to have healing in his wings. And I've gone everywhere else. So maybe, just maybe, this guy's the one. So if if only I could get close. If only I could just get a piece of the fringe. Maybe that'll be enough. And this would make all the sense in the world of what Jesus said to him because he said, someone touched me. And his disciples are like, uh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. And he says, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. 
There was an act of faith that just happened. Power went from me. I'm not talking about just brushing up. Someone reached out and touched me. And this woman falls at Jesus' feet. And what does he say to her? He says, your faith has healed you. Not good job, you fought the crowds and you got to touch. No, no, no. You did something intentional. You made a statement there. Your faith has healed you. And this isn't actually the only time something like this happens in the Gospels. There's actually another story in Mark where it says this, in Mark 6, it says this, and wherever Jesus came in villages and cities and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And many as touched, it were made well. As many of them were touching, it made them well. Hail the son of righteousness. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth. Born to give them second birth. Light and life for all he brings. What is this herald the angels sing? Why is the glory due a newborn king? Because he has healing in his wings. Friends, we've had some hard times this year, haven't we? We've all been going through or know someone who's going through illness and disease, conditions, death. And here's the reality. The reality is we brought this on ourselves. This isn't God's doing. We brought this on ourselves. Our sin is responsible for the breakdown of our bodies and minds. And it's not necessarily directly. It's not like people who get sick are more evil or done something bad to deserve it. It's not that direct. But our sin as a whole have opened up the door to everything we experience in life when it comes to pain and grief and sickness and cancer and disease and debilitating conditions, things that won't stop, things that I've been trying for years like the woman nothing seems to get better. We've had a hard year. And Genesis 2 tells us this. It says that the first consequences for that taste of sin was that once you eat of it, you will certainly die. Romans 8 speaks of all creation groaning as it pains of childbirth right up until the present time as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We are eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And here's what we don't know. We don't know God's timing. We don't know how long we will have to wait for that redemption. Sometimes God gives us healing as a taste of heaven right here and right now because Christ's birth inaugurated an unstoppable march towards healing, new life, and redemption of all things. And we can pray for it as a child prays to a father. But other times, we have to wait. And we don't know why some have to wait and others don't. But when we love the healer more than the healing, when we love God for who he is and not just what he can do for us, when we are there, we can sing of peace and reconciliation 
and joy and triumph and proclamation, adoration, lordship, arrival, incarnation, divinity, even if we have to wait a little longer. Because here's what we do know. There are things we don't know, but here's what we do know, is that he's coming soon. That the baby in the manger inaugurated an unstoppable force that's coming. And we get taste of it here and now by God's grace. We get taste of it now. We see healings here and there. But friends, for all, it's coming. Because we read the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. So now let's read the last chapters of the last book of the New Testament. And in Revelation 21 and 22, it says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then in verse chapter 22, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming. I'm coming. I'd like to invite the band up as we close. This theme has been rattling around in my head for a while now. Because honestly, uh, on a personal note, I I actually haven't experienced much of this in my life. My family has been, uh, by God's grace, has been healthy. I've had no major uh, trauma No major uh, uh, tragedy strike my family or me or people I know. I have not experienced much of this like many of you have. And then we discovered about six weeks ago that Vicki Flannery, who is a member of our church and whose desk is right next to mine, has cancer. And she actually can't be here today because she can't risk your grimy germs as she gets chemo. See, I've never had someone in my day-to-day life have to experience the consequences of all our sin like that. And so something we do as our family, if you've been over to our house, we actually have a, a, a chalkboard. And in the chalkboard, we write things when seasons come up, things we celebrate, things that are good, first days of school, last days of school, Christmas, Advent, Easter, anniversaries, some that kind of is a theme for our family in that season. So we chose because we've had a hard year, haven't we, friends? But here's what I realized. I said that last year. And I said that the year ago and the year after that. And I'll say it again next year probably for my family and maybe someday for me, which is a terrible, terrifying sermon to preach When you say, I've never experienced this before, but God is 
God is good. I felt that pressure this week. Friends, I don't know what the future will hold. We don't know God's timing. We don't know why some people have to wait and some people don't. But here's what we know. He's coming soon. See, the child in the manger inaugurates an unstoppable force that will not be ended, will not be stopped, will not be ceased because there's a baby lying in a manger. God himself is with us and he's coming soon. And the only way I'm not paralyzed by fear, the only ability for joy, the only hope we've got is that child laying in a manger with light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that we may no more die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. So hark, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to Friends, in a minute, we are going to stand and we are going to sing. This is not a solemn song. This is not a slow march or a dirge. This is celebratory. This is joyous. So don't sing it as if death has won. It has not. Because God is with us. So if you would, let's stand together now. Stand with me and let's sing with celebration. Let's sing with joy. Let's sing with victory that he is healing in his wings. Let's sing.